Good morning. And welcome. How many people are here for the first time? <laughs> A sprinkling of others, yeah. yeah. Uh, so, beautiful morning. And uh, yeah, I was just admiring this beautiful Bodhisattva here. Uh, do people know the word Bodhisattva? Some people do. <laughs> uh, maybe. Uh, how many people came for Zazen instruction here this morning? Looks like at least ten, maybe maybe more. Yeah. Well, that's the most important thing. So you've already you've already done what's most important, and you don't need to to uh, worry anymore. <laughs> um, so I just flew in yesterday from San Francisco. I have a daughter who lives uh, in in. Uh, Queens, not so far away. But Laura said, she doesn't go to Queens. <laughs> it's a whole, whole other province. <laughs> but she made the trip and picked me up this morning, so thank you. So it's very good to be here. Uh, and uh, I don't know, was there some introduction made about... What? <laughs> Do people? <laughs> I mean, should I say my name or is there anything? Oh, yeah. see, I said your name and your position. And yeah. Found him. So. Uh -huh. well, it was a pretty good chance. Uh, he thinks about the spirit that you brought with you. Oh, okay. You probably don't want to hear that. Mm. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. It's embarrassing enough. Yeah. Yeah. Um, at any rate, it's so good, good, good to be here in a beautiful place that's being created. Uh, and uh, I feel some strong connection with San Francisco's insider. And uh, it's evident just walking around here and looking at various, various uh, things and the feeling of the place. And it's being well taken care of. And uh, the uh, people. Uh, so uh, I always think, uh, I don't know quite what it is, but Zen practice at attracts good people. So, <laughs> so, uh, so I'll, I'll, how long am I supposed to, when am I supposed to stop, I guess? Uh, should get the 11.50, and now it's 11.20? So I've so I have a I made a little note of uh, a few words from Dogen Zenji Zen uh, Zen Master Dogen was the founder of uh, Soto Zen in, in Japan. So he he was Japanese. He went to China. This lineage of Zen uh, originated in China. 
building upon the teaching of uh, Shakyamuni Buddha in India. So there's a whole kind of interesting layer of cultures and uh, say, I'd say maybe a richness of perspective that comes with that. And then, uh, uh, so when Dogen came from China back to Japan, he eventually established uh, a major temple uh, called the Temple of Eternal Peace, Eiheiji, uh, which still exists today. In fact, it's a big, it's almost a tourist <laughs> place, as well as a training monastery in Japan. Uh, and then uh, Suzuki Roshi, who founded San Francisco Zen Center, uh, again brought this teaching and practice from Japan to America. And uh, he studied uh, the teachings of Dogen uh, all his life, actually. Dogen wrote uh, quite a lot. He wrote, he wrote an unusual amount. <laughs> for a Zen teacher. Um, and uh, so his major collection of works is called uh, the Shobo Genzo, or the Treasury of the True Dharma Eye. And uh, in the Shobo Genzo, one of the, one of the fascicles or essays is called uh, Yuibutsu Yobutsu, which is uh, only Buddha and Buddha. So only a Buddha. So this is actually referring to a line from the Lotus Sutra. Uh, you don't have to remember all this, but I, I know some people here might, you know, say, "Oh yeah, I've heard of that." <laughs> uh, a line from the Lotus Sutra that says, "Only basically, it says only a Buddha meeting together with a Buddha can understand the true nature of reality." Uh, which is interesting, always interesting to me, that there's this sense of uh, relationship, that, that no one uh, in isolation can understand, but it's actually in the meeting that we have some understanding. So there's some sense of engagement. Uh, and a, a Buddha meeting a Buddha can be uh, any, anyone or anything, <laughs> meeting anyone or anything. Uh, so in that uh, essay, uh, Dogen uh, uh, said many things, but in this case, I, I, I made, uh, I wrote this, a uh, few phrases out here this morning. Um, so this is, these are Dogen's words here, in translation. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So he wrote in Japanese. But he wrote in a kind of a, an, a medieval Japanese, difficult to understand. So people have worked very hard, and we're very fortunate. And I feel grateful to people who have worked hard to translate. Though again, uh, so Kaz, um, a man named Kaz Tanahashi, who you may know, some of you may know, is a wonderful artist, uh, teaches, teaches calligraphy as well as has worked all his life, actually, on translating uh, Dogen. First from medieval Japanese into more contemporary Japanese, 
and then from Japanese into uh, English. Uh, so this is from Kaz's translation. When you have unsurpassed wisdom, you are called Buddha. When a Buddha has unsurpassed wisdom, it is called unsurpassed wisdom. Not to know what it is is like uh, what what not to know what it is like on this path is foolish. What it is like is to be unstained. To be unstained does not mean that you try to forcefully exclude intention or discrimination or that you establish a state of non-intention. Being unstained cannot be intended or discriminated at all. Being unstained is meeting a person and not judging by their appearance. Also, it is not wishing for more color or brightness when viewing flowers or the moon. Spring has the tone of spring, and autumn has the scene of autumn. So when you notice that you want spring or autumn to be different from what it is, notice that it can only be as it is. Or when you want to keep spring or autumn as it is, reflect that it has no unchanging nature. So that's a little excerpt from uh, Dogen's writing. So he introduces this notion of uh, Buddha uh, and unsurpassed wisdom being uh, unstained. And that unstained is not trying to get rid of uh, intention or to get rid of discriminative thinking. So that this notion of, uh, we could say, purity, being unstained is uh, pure. So in, uh, in Zen, we say uh, purity is not our usual idea of purity. Our usual idea of purity is you get rid of everything <laughs> until you have something you know, that is essential, uh, free from contamination, right? But in Zen, our idea of purity is that purity is just what is, and that what is includes everything. So rather than getting rid of everything, <laughs> it includes everything. <laughs> because each thing depends upon everything else. There is no separate thing. No one of you are actually separate. Nothing in this room is actually existing without everything else in the universe. <laughs> um, so this idea of purity is that uh, each, each phenomenal existence is pure, inherently pure, because it is the whole universe. 
can't be separated from the whole universe. So he, say, he goes on and says, uh, being unstained is like meeting a person, meeting a person, <laughs> without, uh, uh, he says, paying attention to their characteristics. It doesn't mean that you don't pay attention to their characteristics. It means that you don't judge them by their appearance, uh, by what they look like, or uh, even your uh, say, even after you may think you get to know them. <laughs> and he says it's like when you're viewing flowers, uh, not wishing that they were more colorful <laughs> or that the moon was brighter. So uh, when I arrived here in uh, New York yesterday, people were saying, it's so cold. <laughs> it's a little colder than San Francisco. <laughs> and there's a wind chill, too, some wind, right? So, so that's good, good cold. <laughs> so not wishing for it to be different, right? to appreciate this experience you know, as it is is what uh, Dogen's talking about here. But then if you like it the way it is, he also says, if you want to keep spring or autumn as it is, you should also reflect, it's good to reflect that it does not exist permanently the way it is. It's changing. It's nature. It has no unchanging nature. Suzuki Roshi uh, had the experience of going through the war in Japan. The war being the, what we call World War II or the Pacific War. And uh, after this war, and this was devastating, of course, uh, to Japan, and it concluded with uh, the bombing of Hiroshima and Nagasaki, and so the entering of the atomic uh, nuclear age, um, and all of the anxiety with that. And for the Japanese, it was a time of tremendous humiliation. Um, I think uh, Suzuki Roshi wasn't wasn't so caught up in the nationalistic fervor <laughs> that led to the military militarization of Japan and, and the beginning of that, uh, I won't go into you know, all that history, but after the war, he was interested in rebuilding, rebuilding the culture. Uh, so one of the things that he did was uh, support the kindergarten. He said he wanted to have a good kindergarten in the town of Yaizu, so he was responsible for this temple, Rinso-en, um, which was right, Rinso-en is right up against the kind of the mountain behind a seaside town of uh, Yaizu. It's on the Pacific coast side of, of Japan. And uh, 
So uh, he wanted to have a good, a good head teacher for the kindergarten. And he asked around to get some, well, who would be a great teacher? And someone said they knew someone in, a, in Shizuoka, another larger town not far away. And uh, so this uh, member of his temple, I think uh, from the board of directors of his temple, said, I'll, I'll take you and introduce you to this, this woman who's a teacher. Uh, so they made the trip to Shizuoka and he met <laughs> this teacher, his name is Mitsu. And, uh, and the, the first meet, well, this is a whole story of their, <laughs> of their meeting, which I can't resist <laughs> telling them. Uh, so Mitsu, uh, Mitsu came out, I guess, of what the classroom or her office or whatever, and she saw Here's this uh, monk who was uh, dressed like a priest. Uh, uh, it was uh, Shinri Suzuki and then this other person who she knew. And she said, and he said to her, he said, I brought you a monk. <laughs> and, she, and she turned to Suzuki Roshi and said, are you looking for a wife? <laughs> <laughs> And the other person said, oh, no, 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 He's, he already has a wife. <laughs> uh, so it was, it, it became customary in the late 19th century and early 20th century for Zen priests and, uh, and other Buddhist priests in Japan to, to marry. Um, that's a whole nother topic. But anyway, <laughs> he said, you know, would you come and be the head teacher at, at the kindergarten in Yaizu? And she said, oh no, I already have a job. And, and um, so they went away and, he, and Suzuki Roshi felt this is a great person. Somehow he felt that. So he went back again next week <laughs> on his own. He went back and he'd wait there and when she'd come out he would say, I really would think, uh, you, you, I really want you to come to kindergarten and teach in Yaizu. And she would say various things like, uh, Yaizu, that's a fishing town. I hate fish. <laughs> She's an interesting person, you can tell, right? And then, uh, or she would say, uh, um, it, it's a Buddhist, he would say, oh, this is a Buddhist kindergarten. She would say, well, I'm a Christian. <laughs> Why would I want to come to a Buddhist kindergarten? But he kept coming week after week. And finally he said, I want you to at least come and meet some of the other people at the temple in uh, Yaizu. Um, and uh, so she said, well, okay. And I think it was like uh, the, one of the, the chairman of the board and family and some other notable people. And she came and had a nice dinner and something. And it kind of warmed up a little bit to the idea. And eventually she consented, came and took the position. Um, then after she was there, he's, he said, now that you're here, uh, I want you to come to these Buddhist talks. <laughs> so one of, uh, one of his teachers, uh, Ian Kishizawa, who had been, uh, who was a great uh, Dogen Zenji scholar, was giving lectures in another town regularly, once a month. And so he, he would go and he brought her along. And after a few of these talks, much more uh, 
detailed interpretation of Dogen that I'm giving you this morning. <laughs> After a few of those, she said, I don't understand a thing he's saying. <laughs> Could you tell me what Buddhism is all about in just a few words? And, she, and he thought for a little while and he said, it's to accept what is as it is and help it to be its best. So she remembered that. That's something she could, <laughs> she could actually take in and apply to her life. To accept what is as it is and help it to be its best. So that's another way of saying what I was just, what Dogen was just saying. This is unsurpassable Buddha, meeting Buddha. Accept what is as it is and help it to be its best. So that is uh, uh, something that she was receptive to and it was part of the skill, I would say, of uh, Shinri's of uh, Shunryu Suzuki to say, to put it in such simple language. And she noticed that when she made that effort to take up this practice of accepting what is as it is, meaning each of the other teachers she was working with, can she accept them as they are? Each of the children in the kindergarten, right? can she accept each child as as she is, and help her, five-year-old, <laughs> to be her best, you know. She noticed that when she put this into practice that her, her life actually worked better. Uh, as it turned out, just to put a little cap on that, as it turned out, the Suzuki Roshi's uh, wife uh, was killed, and uh, later, before he came to America, the people in the Japanese temple, Sokoji in San Francisco, wanted a priest to come with a wife. <laughs> so people said, you have to marry someone. So he ended up then marrying again and marrying Mitsu, the kindergarten teacher. Um, and. She said uh, it was a, it was a good balance because she was very he was very quiet and she was very outspoken. In fact, pe people always said about her that she was born talking. <laughs> so she was very outspoken, and it was it was a good combination for San Francisco Zen Center, for her for both of them actually to be uh, working together, uh, and. Uh, after, after he died, she stayed in San Francisco uh, for many years. Um, until she was in her 80s. She was actually quite a bit younger than he was. And uh, uh, then she, she returned to Japan. Must have been about 15 years ago. But during that from, from 1971, when, when Suzuki Roshi died until, until uh, 
sometime in the 90s when she, she was there and she taught tea ceremony and uh, practiced haiku, poetry, writing. There's a book of her haiku that's published. And by the way, I was, I was talking with Kaz Tanahashi and he's working on another uh, group of uh, translations of her haiku that hopefully we'll have published next year for her 100th birthday. <laughs> she's, she's 99 now and uh, quite, quite a wonderful character. Um, but she won't come back to America. She's, she's staying, staying in Japan. Um, she was very relieved when she didn't have to speak terrible English anymore. Um, in the same uh, uh, fascicle of uh, the Shobo Genzo, uh, Dogen quotes another, uh, quotes a Zen master, a Chinese Zen master, uh, Baoshan, who uh, was asked by one of his students, how, how can I deal with the situation when a hundred things come at me at once? When a thousand things come at me at once? When, when the myriad things all come at me at once? And uh, Baoshan said, don't try to control them. Don't try to control them. Don't move. <laughs> so we think we have a busy world, right? Yeah. Which we do. There's a busy world right outside. <laughs> there might be a busy world going on right inside your mind. So even inside your mind, we say, oh, a hundred things come up at once, a thousand things. Don't try to control. Don't even try to control trying to control. <laughs> not so easy. You might think, oh, now I have to, now I have to try to not try to control. <laughs> but it's good to notice the tendency, the tendency you might have to want to control. You know? Even at the most refined level, moment by moment, we are carrying our karmic tendencies to try to cope with and protect ourselves and so you may, as you sit, over time, you may notice more and more how you're trying to control things by having, even by having some little preference or opinion, even by how you conceptualize something. The very way in which we conceptualize things, in a sense, is, is, a, is a volitional act of control and we cannot help that. We're learning, actually, from the time we're born into this human life, you know. From the time we're born, we're, we're trained, <laughs> and we have to learn how to control things. <laughs> you know? How to control our own body. I have a one-year-old uh, grandson who will be one-year-old tomorrow. And I'm, so I'm visiting there, visiting him, and uh, he's, he can't control so much. <laughs> but he really wants to. <laughs> he, 
he gets very frustrated when he, you know, he tries to do something, he can't do it. He can't even control his own hands, right? Trying to pick things up. And he's not so precise. You know. He can't really do very well with a spoon and getting his supper into his mouth. You know, he, he can't really do. But he, he's working at it. He has a big sister, and he's watching her, trying to do what she does. You know. She just recently taught him how to spin around until he gets dizzy and falls down. <laughs> 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 this is a great thing, you know. He, can, he's, he learned to walk about a month ago, so he stands up and now he can toddle around and around and around until he falls down. So. <laughs> and then gets up again. So this is, and turning the pages of a book, he just, this is a big, big event for him to turn the page, get a hold of that page and turn, he likes turning the page and then he just, then he's working, getting it faster and faster. <laughs> <laughs> Maybe he'll be a speed reader. <laughs> but it's just like, he's only one, you know, and he's, got a, he's, he's mastered a lot already, you know, to be able to stand up. You know. um, he really had to work at that, as we all had to do that, you know. And his, uh, he can only say a few intelligible syllables at this point. But he's working at how to make talk <laughs> How to make intelligible speech, you know? How to control the lips and the tongue. So all of this, you know, we're doing, and we don't, uh, we don't think about it. Uh, we don't notice how much we're doing every moment, how we see things. I was reading a study of perception a while ago, and it was striking to me when someone, someone made the statement, I don't remember his name, but he made the statement, there are no colors in nature. Interesting, interesting, that we actually make colors in our brains, right? <laughs> we get a whole range of, of waves of light, you know, stimulating our, our sensory cells in our eyes. And then we say, oh, that's, I was saying to my grandson, that's a green truck. <laughs> it's a green truck. Yeah. So to not control things uh, is impossible, right? So that's what we do. We do in this practice. We actually vow to do what is impossible. This is bringing balance into our lives, where we're doing all, we're always doing what's possible and succeeding or failing, right, in the whole realm of what's possible. Sometimes we succeed and sometimes we fail. But beyond that, we have a, we have a life that's spacious in which we are doing what's impossible. We're doing what's impossible because we can't do it. We can't do it from the point of view of our own self uh, identity. So to have confidence in this life that is given to us, being supported by so many beings that we can't control, 
thankfully. <laughs> We'd really mess it up. <laughs> we mess up a lot of what we can control, right, as human beings, because we, we have so much uh, of our own, say, desire and grasping, clinging, which is uh, failing to be true to our, say, our deeper nature, our Buddha nature. Failing our own capacity for wisdom, we get caught up in our, our say, small-minded uh, desires. And if we look carefully, most of our desires have fear behind it. Um, so our own fears are so involved in what we desire. Fearing uh, loss, you know. As soon as we think we have something that we know, we have a little anxiety immediately, actually, on a very subtle level, because we know that it's not permanent, right? So, given all that, we can still help each other. So it's wonderful to see people coming together. We call it Sangha, community. People coming together to remind each other to sit down, <laughs> stop, make the shift from our conceptual thinking mind to what Dogen called non-thinking. It's hard to believe the value. It's hard to understand and appreciate the value of non-thinking. <laughs> it may also be related to our, to our bicameral mind, right? To the, to the right brain and left brain. It may also be related to what, we're, what neurologists are learning more and more about now, about how, who knows, there may be neurologists in the room here, anyway, <laughs> who understand that actually uh, we have a capacity that's, uh, that's uh, receptive and creative uh, that isn't exactly possible to uh, fit into the conceptual Imagist or linguistic mind. And so this is also who we are. And uh, so it's good to know that you are more than you think you are. It's also kind of scary. You know? <laughs> and so to have some confidence in this capacity that we have. Well, we, so one of the words we use for it is Buddha, awakening, meaning that we're not dividing ourselves from what is, willing to be fully present with what is. I forgot what time I'm supposed to stop. Right, in the, right now, right? Yeah, a couple of minutes ago. Not bad, not, not bad. 
Um, so, but I wanted to uh, teach us teach you a song. <clears throat> Um, so here in uh, so the song is a, is by uh, uh, Lead Belly. Some of you may have heard of Lead Belly um, or Hootie Leadbetter. Was his uh, so he was uh, American uh, blues singer and uh, folk singer. Had a lot of difficulty in his life. He was in and out of prison a few times. I think pardoned once by the governor of Texas <laughs> and once by the governor of Louisiana. <laughs> he hooked up with uh, the Lomax uh, people, Lomaxes who were collecting American folk uh, songs at one point. And he was a driver uh, for a while for Alan Lomax. Um, And the reason I mentioned he was a driver is because this song is about driving. Um, it's a, how can you uh, uh, accept what is and take responsibility for your life, you know, moment by moment? So you have to pay attention. And uh, how can, and can, you, can you pay attention and also be relaxed at the same time? So Lead Belly came up with this song called Relax Your Mind. And it came, I think, out, out of his driving around with Alan Lomax. And he, he said, he said uh, whenever I'm driving, I look right through the windshield. If you're sitting over here, talk to me. I don't look at you. I look through the windshield. <laughs> he said, I've, I've driven all over this country. And I never even hit a chicken. <laughs> so that's his uh, kind of certification of his own uh, <laughs> Buddha mind, right? <laughs> so it goes, uh, it goes like this. Relax your mind, relax your mind. Helps you live a great long time. Sometimes you've got to relax your mind. So that's the chorus, right? You can all join in on that, right? <laughs> relax your mind, relax your mind. Helps you live a great long time. Sometimes you've got to relax your mind. Oh, when the light turns green, put your foot on that gasoline. That's the time you've got to relax your mind. Relax your mind. Relax your mind. Helps you live a great long time. Sometimes you've got to relax your mind. And when the light turns red, Push that break down to the bed. That's a time you better relax your mind. Relax your mind. Relax your mind. Help you live a great long time. 
Sometimes you've got to relax your mind. I had a friend cross a railroad track. Oh, Lord, he forgot to relax. That's the time he should have relaxed his mind. Relax your mind, relax your mind, help you live a great long time. Sometime you've got to relax your mind, and when the light turns puce, that's not the time to be confused. <laughs> Sometimes you've got to relax your mind, Relax your mind, relax your mind, helps you live a great long time. Sometimes you've got to relax your mind. Da, 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 Hey. Thank you for listening and for joining in on that. And it's good to remember, you know. Puce, by the way, you know, is another word for yellow, right? <laughs> so do you go faster when you see the yellow line, or do you stop? <laughs> and it is. Uh, I know it's in New York, people don't have to drive that much, right? Because you have the MTA. You have the, but in case you're driving, and you come to a red light or a stop sign, that's a time to stop. <laughs> and you can actually take your hands off the steering wheel, right? Stop, oh, opportunity to stop. Hmm. Have a moment of relaxation, you know? Then when the light turns green, then you put your foot on the gas Eileen. <laughs> Okay. Thank you for listening to this podcast offered by the Brooklyn Zen Center. Our programs are given free of charge and made possible by the donations we receive. For more information on supporting Brooklyn Zen Center, please visit the giving section of brooklynzen.org.